It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. If you can believe it, we are at episode 11 in this series. Uh, we have covered you know, what feels like a lot of ground. I mean, 10 messages that are close to an hour long each. And we've, gone, we've spent 10 hours focusing on basically what we call the beginnings of World War I. And yet, if you were to see the entire uh, storyline of World War I, we would all laugh of, of how smallish our investment is into this pursuit so far. And it makes it challenging for me because I'm staring at this one little time slot that I have for World War I, which is not just the training, the five weeks that you guys are here, but it covers around a 14-week stretch, which gives me a lot of time, you know, right, to, to move and to get into uh, my, my athletic uh, action to get this done. But I tell you what, I'm already starting to ponder, is like, is this World War I part one of four, you know, where, where I take it? But I, so it's an interesting thing for me to try and work through mentally of how I approach this. And that was part of what I was thinking through yesterday. This is uh, a, in almost every series I do, I have a message that is similar in its truth to this. And what's interesting is I feel like I'm taking a key truth and I'm splurging it in a way that I wouldn't typically. Like, I love it. Like, I use this same truth when I was dealing with King Alfred when he is going to radically alter the system of the Anglo-Saxon government. And he's going to build uh, these, this Burr system, which is a whole new defense system. And he's going to change the economy. He's going to basically have everyone turn in their, uh, their monetary uh, pieces, and he is going to turn four pieces into one. So it looks like you're giving up like 75% of your wealth and yet it's going to become the most valuable currency in the world. He, this guy is going to risk so much to actually change his country. And so in World War II, I'm talking about Winston Churchill and how they're going to get across the English Channel with millions of men to actually make the invasion on the beaches of Normandy. And to do it, they had to change the way they thought. And he is going to invent this system of amphibious warfare to go from water to land, which is not that easy. Usually you have to you know, uh, dock a ship way out there and then get little boats to carry them over, and that's not going to work in World War II. You know, under the fire, of, whether it's plane fire or artillery fire, you're not going to last. No one's going to get it. So you have a million men show up and a million men die. That's not going to be good. How are we going to make this invasion? How are we going to take back and break through fortress uh, Europe, right along uh, the, that borderline of the English Channel. And so you have to go through the series to hear these things. But it's, it's good stuff. And it's always about where we're at today. We have a tendency to entrench ourselves in an old system of behavior because it worked. And so why do you do that? Well, because I've always done that. And there is sometimes a need to have a reset of the way you do things, the way you approach life. And that could be the way you wake up in the morning. Like for instance, once you've established the fact that you are a night person, it actually becomes very, very challenging to become a morning person. Why? Because you've already told yourself, in fact, you repeat it every time you speak, I'm a night person. That's why I'm so groggy. That's why I'm miserable when I'm trying to wake up. Well, anyone who changes their sleeping patterns is gonna go through that. Okay, so in, when you're in a time of change, you have to go through, in a sense, that extra drowsiness of moving forward into a zone that you are unfamiliar. World War I is going to be the perfect picture in history to show a time period in history where everyone, I mean, just like every nation is struggling with the same thing. This is the way that war is done. And they're convinced because they've been studying. Military science has become 
an art form at this time. And so everyone has it, and there's an elegance, there's a nobility to it. And people have fallen in love with war. At this time, you would have called it the romance of war. And young men wanted to go off to war. They wanted to serve their country. And so this is all going to run into a brick wall in World War I. Now, at the very beginning, it's still there because all of the media sources are muted. No one is able to actually share back home what is taking place. The French government didn't even know about the massive losses. In other words, it was all held. The military knew what was going on, but they didn't want anyone, including governmental leaders, to know. So the prime minister of France doesn't even know what's really going on. Okay, so what we have is a very slow change. Why? Because technically those that are in charge and know what's taking place in the war are refusing to alter their system. Remember the French, they're going to come in with this French fury, this revanchism, this doctrine of the offensive, never go on the defensive, never. I mean, to go on the defensive is like heretical. It would, it would be bad doctrine. It is the opposite, the antithesis of what makes a good soldier. And yet, what do you do when you're losing hundreds of thousands of men in this ridiculous experiment to prove your doctrine? Do you eventually come to the point where you say, maybe we should think about this? Maybe we should discuss a different model? This is, what, this is the crisis that is happening, not just in France, but in every other country that is a part of this. And the military system is set. It's like the old school system. And it's the young school that sort of needs to start questioning things. It's like, are, are, is this the best way? But the young school is not in the general position. They're not the generals. They're, they're the young bucks. They're the guys that are wanting to reinvent the system because they're the ones dying on the front lines. And so we have a tension, which is not altogether different than most generations walk through. One of the challenges we face, and I, I face it as a leader. I really do. I, I'm like classic old-fashioned sort of leader. This is the way Christianity has always functioned. This is how we do it. This is how missions works. This is, this is what has changed the world throughout the generations. We're not going to reinvent that. And some of you go, amen. And so when you get things like Facebook, okay, which I really don't like. I don't like Facebook. Let me just be blunt, honest about it. I've never made a post in my life. You can say, I've read your posts, Eric. Yeah, but I didn't make them, right? Someone made them for me. I don't, I don't go to Facebook. I don't hang out on Facebook. Instagram, I don't like it, okay? Now, you could say, that is so rude, Eric. You just wouldn't like these things. I don't like how they control our culture. I don't like how people get addicted to these things. And so I have a tendency to be the old school guy, the grandpa in the room that's like, oh, in my day, we didn't have... You know, I, I find myself thinking those exact thoughts. In my day, we didn't have this. And my day sounds so much better. But in my day, you know, the grandpas were saying, in my day, we didn't have, you know, it, it was, I, my day when I was young was pretty bad, okay? And so we've only grown, grown more grotesque uh, as a culture since then. But sometimes the answer isn't just what I did when I was young. And that's the problem that many of us deal with is we look back on these quote-unquote glory days before COVID. That's the new thing. It's like, remember the days before masks? I don't know if you guys remember those thoughts. Remember the days we could just drive more than five miles and you know, we could do whatever we wanted? If we wanted to go to a park and shoot baskets, we could. And I, if you remember that lockdown season, it had such an oppression and we started going back to what we could call glory days. And yet if you were to go back to those days, you'd recognize there's a lot of problems with those days too. And so sometimes it needs to be more of a radical review. You need to go a little deeper than just going back a few years. You need to maybe even examine the foundations of something. In World War, you're going to see a complete overhaul of military science that is going to come out of this. And for us, for me as a leader, there are times when God has begun to work in me to say, Eric, there are things that must never change, but there are things that must change. And you see, your attitude towards change becomes very, very important in your Christian life. Because if you are under the impression that nothing should ever change, I like life just the way it is and it can never change, you're actually going to falter. You have to be malleable to change, but you need to know what should never change and what must change. 
And there's a tension between those, and you're going to see that clash in World War I. So this message, part 11, is the red trouser dilemma. And now you guys are already somewhat familiar with the red trousers, right? And you, you see, you know you're World War I, and you know who wears those red trousers, right? So there's some red trousers uh, for you. So I showed you this picture of the French army. This is literally how they headed off to war. Now, it's, it's even more gaudy than this if you were to see, uh, I don't remember how you pronounce it, like their cuirassiers. It's like their cavalry, you know, with the plumes. And, you know, they, 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 it's a big deal. It's gaudy. You know, it's, it's larger than life. It's sort of like, hey, we're on the offensive. We don't fear you. We don't mind if you see us because we're going to devastate you anyways. And so we're going to have our officers stand up with their red kepis. Did you hear, hear that? That is the correct way of saying it. I don't know what I said before, but I didn't, I'm saying it correct now. With their red caps, their blue coats, and their red trousers, and the, you know, the staff officer, whoever it is, is standing up with his white glove. Okay? It's like, hey, shoot me. And they did. So I can't say this guy's name. It's like Eugene Etienne, but he's the former French war minister. And this is the quote that he's known for. Could you imagine out of all the quotes to go down in history for you, this is the one he has. Eliminate the red trousers? Never! And everyone's like standing ovation. You know, this is, this is France right here. You want us to eliminate the red trousers? Can't you just see it's this young guy that comes in and he has some new thinking. And he's like, I just think, you know, the Germans are, you know, like have sort of a pale bluish uh, thing and then uh, like gray and then the, the British have khaki. We have red. They seem to be interested in this camouflage thing. And everyone is just like, heresy, heresy. And it's interesting because there are times in history when this begins to happen. And there's times even in our soul where we hold on to our red trousers. Isn't that interesting? It's like, to us, it is a compromise. It goes against what we stand for. And yet, you, if you examine a little further, it's like, why do you stand for red trousers? That is the wrong hill to die on. There are hills that you should die on. I don't know that that's the right one. So the old way of waging war. I, now, this is a message, you know, this is a series on World War I. It's not, I'm not trying to teach you about other time periods. At the same time, to really understand this, it helps to know a little, and so I'm going to just brush over a few things in this message. But so this is a quote that sort of summarizes most of it, and I'm going to say that the, the person we're quoting is the befuddled onlooking world, and what does the befuddled onlooking world say? Battles always end in a day, don't they? You see, historic battles are like a day long, and then who won? You know, every now and then you might have a couple days of a battle, but they're short. So no one has a grid for what they're about to run into. Four years of constant, you know, antagonism. It's not like, oh, we go and we greet each other with some volleys of bullets and then we pull back. And then we say, you know, let's go out and attack again. And then that becomes yet another battle in a great war, right? This is like constant entrenchment, constant engagement, even during the night. All day long, every day, this goes on for four years. Okay, so you could just imagine how shocking this is to the world that has their way of understanding war. This isn't what war is. So here's a Canadian soldier riding home to his father. This isn't war. This is the end of the world. <laughs> And that is how it felt. When you use the term Armageddon, you have to, you know, just for some of you, what does that trigger? That's end of the world stuff. That's why this was called, back in their mind, this was Armageddon to them. It didn't seem to be, you know, and it even started being in the Middle East too. And so you could just imagine how people were feeling about this. This is the entire world coming to war. Everyone's lost their head. Their brains have suddenly just been turned off and everyone's just gone crazy. And that's the way it feels. Imagine being caught up in it. So Dan Carlin, uh, who out of his uh, podcast series, Blueprint for Armageddon, has this quote. An Italian historian named Ferraro in 1933, so this is after the war, he's reflecting back, this Italian historian, just with the fondness of what war used to be before the Great War, talked about how that era, pre-First World War, 
warfare. It was the kind of warfare where the leaders of countries could actually have fun going to war. It was something you did like pheasant hunting. <laughs> you see, to us, our entire impression of war is from World War I on. And so that idea of like, hey, let's go off and go to war. You know, in the Civil War, in the very first battle, sort of the elites and the wealthy are coming and setting up picnics to watch it. Okay, so that's a little different than the way we have grown up with an understanding of war. You see, war is going to change in 1914. It's going to alter, but it, the people that are a part of it are going to take a while to change with it. So this is what I'm calling the allied opinion. So I'm, I have to quote someone, right? But the forts of Liege are indestructible. See, after the first few days of this, you see, when you see this massive German army coming into uh, Belgium, you know, it doesn't look good. But then when you see the forts and how, I mean, the Germans can't stop them. It's like, the, see, this is what, you know, we, we knew. The, the old fort system, this is how it works. You know, forts, by the end of World War, well, by, not even by the end, by the first few weeks, at the end of the first few weeks of World War I, are going to be completely useless. Everything a fort has been, all of war history is built on forts. Think about that. Everything in history past, you build your fort and then you, you, know, you have your gun aimed out of it and it, it provides a protection. Think about castles. Everything about that is a fort system. Remember moats and you, know, you have your entire system. Well, now you bring in artillery guns that shoot these massive uh, shells up into the air and they come straight down and completely blow up the whole fort. It's like, so you want to spend millions of dollars on building forts? If they're just going to get decimated by these guns, suddenly everything is shifting. It's like, whoa, we used to be protected by a fort. What do we do with these artillery shells coming at us? Imagine in World War I, you start getting planes, right? And everyone's like, plane, plane? What could a plane do? Well, at first, they're just sort of surveying and seeing what the enemy's up to. Then they realize they could strap a bomb to it and like untie the bomb and it goes, it's like, huh. So now, now when you see a plane coming overhead, you're like, whoa! I mean, that's like a totally different way to invade a territory. Think about this. Planes have just been event invented. They're just being used. And now suddenly you realize you could put a gun on a plane and shoot another plane. And you could drop a bomb from that plane. This could be useful. And so as a result, you see all the old moorings of war suddenly melting away. The things that used to work no longer work. So the forts of Liege are indestructible, says the Allies. You know, everyone's like patting each other on the back, like, yeah, we built these great forts. This is going to work. The German army, they can have massive amounts of men, but they can't come against our old-fashioned forts. So Barbara Tuckman says this in the Guns of August. Cavalrymen on both sides still believed in the naked sword. It was called the arm blanche. Despite the experience of the American Civil War when Confederate General Morgan, employing his men as mounted infantry with rifles, would cry, here boys are those fools coming again with their sabers. Give it to them. There is something romantic about the saber, the sword. And you have to admit, in history, swords have been very, very important. But now you have rifles. And as we get close to World War I, you start getting what's called the Gatling gun. And then you get the machine gun. And if someone has a sword and you have a machine gun, who are you voting on? And that's still in this time period, they're saying, like cavalry, they're on horseback, right? And there's a certain cavalry charge with sabers and it's romantic and it's, this is how it's done. This is how you do things. And they refuse to acknowledge, even when they're getting feedback, like from the Civil War, it's like, well, uh, don't you, didn't, don't you uh, remember what General Morgan said? to his troops, and people would be like, heresy! That's like asking us to get rid of our red trousers, to get rid of our sabers, to get rid of our cavalry. I mean, this is the romance of war. In the Russo-Japanese War, an English observer, the future General Sir Ian Hamilton, reported that the only thing the cavalry could do in the face of entrenched machine guns was to cook rice for the infantry causing the war office to wonder if his months in the Orient had not affected his mind. They're concerned about Sir Ian Hamilton. Why? Because he is diminishing the value of cavalry. 
And I mean, maybe something got messed up when he was observing the war. Maybe he lost a few screws because he, he doesn't seem to be thinking right. Doesn't he know the value of cavalry, of the charge, of the saber? Doesn't he get that? When Germany's observers, so now Germany has an observer in the same war. In the same war, the future General Max Hoffmann reported a similar conclusion about the defensive power of entrenched machine guns. Moltke, remember our guy, Gloomy Gus, was inspired to comment, there never was such a crazy way of making war. See, these are the military geniuses of the time, and they have no grid to absorb this sort of thing. And it's, I mean, we, we've gone through advancements in technology in our lifetimes. You know, if you were to hear about the internet uh, before it happened, you would have thought the same thing. There's never been such a weird way of communicating with someone. Email? What, 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 do, you, what do you mean by email? Yeah, you like type something into this like box and it like sends it to somewhere else in the world and it's like connected. How is it connected? Can you explain that to me? I don't know, it's like some thing known as the internet. Well, how does the internet work? I, I don't know. Uh, it's just somehow it's connected. It's, I mean, it, even us, if I asked you, so tell me how the internet works. You're like, well, it's just, you know, it's just there. <laughs> of course, there's Josh back there. He's like, you want to hear how the internet works? He would know, right? But for most of us, we just use it, right? You don't need to know how to build a car to drive a car. And so we have had advancements in technology that if you go back just a few years before it happened, You'd have said that's impossible. I still remember a fax machine and thinking, just staring at it, going, that is remarkable. That is remarkable that you can take an image of something here and actually create it there. Now you can actually take a 3D image of something here and print it here. What? <laughs> I mean, because when I saw it, growing up when I had Star Trek, when they would like, you know, they would get into this little machine thing and it would like, dematerialize them and materialize them somewhere else. It's like, yeah, right. Now it's sort of like, okay, you know, I guess we're one step closer to that. That's the way it feels. Of course, it would be like Eric, you know, you take a picture of him and then there's just this like plastic Eric somewhere else. You know, right now that's where we're at, but it's, it's still shocking to see development and the development of like a machine gun. There is no grid to be able to understand how that's going to affect things. There's no grid for something, like I, I said earlier, of barbed wire. Barbed wire, if, if we were to all evaluate what are the most dangerous weapons or the most helpful weapons in war, you're all going with Big Bertha so far. You're like, okay, I want Big Bertha. We want to order that. And then you know, one of you is going to say, I want a spool of barbed wire. And someone's going to say, no, no, if we're going to, hey, don't make that your first choice. You know, go with Big Bertha, go with some machine guns. But a spool of barbed wire is going to create more challenge for the enemy than almost anything else. I'm not going to say it's greater than an artillery shell. I'm just saying it is a very unique thing that is going to create a defensive measure against forward movement. I mean, you can't get through these things. Your shirt gets caught on it. And now you're a sitting duck. How do you get over this? I mean, you try and leap, you catch your, you know, your shoe on it, and now you're stuck. I mean, this stuff is weird. And you can't just blow it away with a gun. It's like aim your rifle at it. It doesn't take care of it. You can't bomb it out of there. We can't get through the barbed wire. It's a weird problem. And barbed wire wasn't invented for this. It was a cattle thing. And, and yet here it's being used, and it's totally changing how warfare works. And so what we're entering into is something that is not altogether different than what we're entering into as Christians. The world is changing around us. When Ellerslie starts, on-site training was the only kind of training that existed. If you wanted to be educated, you come somewhere, you sit under tutelage, and you are trained. That was normal. Well, about three years into Ellerslie's development, suddenly the advent of online training emerges. Now, it wasn't very impressive at first, but as it begins to grow and begins to sort of flesh itself out, people are realizing that why would I spend this much to go and do it this way when I could just do it at home for one-tenth the cost? 
you have to admit, there's something to that. So Ellerslie's in the midst of this. Just imagine what this is like when people are like, I don't need to come to Ellerslie. Where's the online version? And we're like, well, there still is value in being face-to-face, right? But a generation has to go through those movements, and those in leadership have to respond to those movements. I could either say, ah, you know, who cares about them? And so Ellerslie's trying to figure out how do we communicate online? You know, do you have a blog? Do you make videos? Do you, what, what do you do with this technological advancement without compromising the very thing you stand for? I, you know, is making a video evil? Because if it is, I'm not going to use it. Is it amoral? Because if it's amoral, it has no moral value to it, well, then maybe I could use it for the glory of God. But I don't like it. You know, it's, you're sniffing it like one of those old generals going, I don't know about this. There never was such a crazy way of making war. So Barbara Tuckman says this, French soldiers still wore the same blue coats, red kepi, and red trousers they had worn in 1830. Same outfit, never altered it. When rifle fire carried only 200 paces and when armies fighting at these close quarters had no need for concealment. So there's no need for concealment when they invented the red kepi, the blue uh, jacket, and the red uh, trousers. And rifle fire could only travel 200 paces. So as a result, everything made sense back then. But you want to say to the French, it's like, but everything has changed. And they do not accept that change. That change does not change their doctrine of the offensive. Their red trousers are a statement that matches their conviction, which is, we do not fear you. We are fine to make a statement that we are on the battlefield. You see us? Yeah, that's the ones that's going to beat you. Right? You see these red trousers? Yeah, they're coming to get you. That's their entire doctrine, and it's actually rather noble-sounding. You know, if you were to ponder it, it's like, huh, I like that better than hiding, hiding from your enemy. What about just boasting and saying, we've got you, oh enemy? You know, when you think about your Christian life, it's like, yeah, instead of like hiding in a corner and trembling, what about boldly asserting yourself in the authority of Christ? So when you look at the French, you could sort of understand why, if that's part of their entire doctrine, in their military science, why it's rather important not to touch the red trousers. But those red trousers are going to get them into a whole lot of difficulty. The propensity to do what we have always done. It is very human to do it. So we are creatures of habit. Have you ever heard that statement? We are. We get into habits and habits don't change easily. Sometimes people say that they, you know, what is, if I were to ask you guys, how many repetitions does it take to change a habit? Then we get all sorts of answers here. There's always the people that think it happens very easily, like 15, you know, 15 repetitions. And someone over here is like 28. That's what I grew up with. I don't know where that number comes from. 28 times. And then sometimes I'm wondering, is that how many times you chew your meat before you swallow? Or was that how many times you have to repeat something before the, the habit changes? And then there's other people like 40. And they have this huge number, right? Which discourages some of us that are trying to change a habit. However, most of us would agree. It doesn't just happen with a snap. It happens through a deliberate agreement that I need to live differently. And then applying yourself unto a new habit takes diligence. It's not just, you know, one day where you're like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do this. And what we have is an entire world going through that right now. It's not just one nation. It's an entire world. We have soldiers that came off to war with this expectation. Just remember the, the old contemptibles, John Lucy? This is when they're still in a moving warfare, like old school warfare. And it's fun for them. They're like little schoolboys, And they're like, oh, this is great. And then suddenly it's going to darken. And you're going to end up in a trench where you can't move. And machine gun fire is you know, blaring over your head. Artillery shells are going out. Your, your best friend is laying dead next to you. You can't get out of, the, out of that trench. If you lift your head up, you'll be shot. And you have to go to the bathroom real bad. Okay, this is like a whole new thing. And no one has a grid for it. Something that we would call PTSD is going to massively come out of this. It's, shell shock is going to be a massive problem out of this. 
No one had ever suffered from it before. So it's going to appear as weakness and cowardice to the generals when they have these men that are sort of losing their minds after being bombed all day long by artillery shells. You know, it's so destabilizing to the human psyche to go through this, and these men would want to run. If, if they showed weakness, they would be set against a post and shot for being a traitor, for being a coward. And that's how you prove to the rest of your troops that behavior is not going to be allowed here. So as a result, these young soldiers have no idea what they're, I mean, the, the generals aren't in the trench. So no one understands. There's no book on this yet. And so it's going to create a crisis of epic proportions, and it's all over the issue of change. The issue of change is right at the center of this discussion. So we'll call this the lesson of Namur, August 21, 1914. So in August, we're going to see Liège begin to crumble. Once Big Bertha and that, that mighty artillery uh, machine, that gun comes in, I mean, it just starts devastating the forts. And the world can't fathom what is taking place right now. First of all, they can't see it, right? So to hear that the forts of Liège suddenly just fell, like when the Germans brought in an artillery machine, it's like, ah, there must be something wrong in what you're telling me. Okay, there's no artillery machine that could devastate forts like this. So they're like disbelieving. And they're like, no, 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 there must be a mistake. There must be something else to the story. So Winston Churchill himself is actually going to come, I think he actually comes to Namur to, to see what is taking place, to try and wrap his mind around this weird story that's coming out of Liège. So the Allied opinion, the fall of Liège forts was a fluke. Namur, which is the next city over that the Germans are heading towards, that will hold. Okay, It's built to hold. There's no way they're going to get through Namur. So here's Winston Churchill. I did not mind it much till I got to Namur. Namur fallen? Namur taken in a single day? Although a French brigade had joined the Belgians in its defense? We were evidently in the presence of new facts and of a new standard of values. If strong fortresses were to melt like wisps of vapor in a morning sun, many judgments would have to be revised. The foundations of thought were quaking. Of course, it's Winston Churchill, too, saying it. I mean, he has such a, a romance even in his writing. But that's an interesting way of describing something that I have felt at times in our culture. It's just like, this can change fast. As a leader of the church, how am I supposed to respond to what is taking place in the world around me, which feels like lava at times? It doesn't feel stable. And so as a result, how do I live in light of that? How do I speak in light of that? And so, I mean, you could study my sermons over the years and probably create an entire doctrine of how Eric approaches this, right? Because this is the world I've lived in. This message, this is why it slips into a lot of what I do, because it's a very significant meditation in my life. But for instance, when I see a vaccine mandate sort of hanging on the horizon, if you ever went through, I had like four parts, vaccine dilemma part four, I think I had. I think I even had a bonus. Was it five? Five parts. It's like, who in the, I didn't even want to talk on it once, let alone five times. And yet what you see me doing is trying to address a very tumultuous situation in the church. My desire is to actually bring stability as a leader as opposed to feed a frenzy or feed one side against the other because that's what the enemy's trying to do is turn us against each other. All right, how do we approach this as the body of Christ? And so how do we as individuals handle these things? That's all an issue of change. We're in a World War I type of scenario, and when you hold on to your old way, this is the way it has to be. Like, for instance, that, that statement, I, you know, I cannot function in my day unless I have coffee in the morning. Now, the danger with that, because I'm not going to argue, I'm sure that coffee's really helping and, you know, giving you a kick. However, imagine if coffee was removed. You're going into a World War I situation, and you could just say, I can't function anymore. I mean, that would be the conclusion of your sentiment, right? I cannot function until I get my coffee. Well, what if you don't get your coffee? Are you going to take that? Are you just going to accept that your life will never be functional for the rest of your life? No, you're going to have to alter the way your body works. 
And so it's the same thing in many seasons of our life. We need to be prepared to be thrown into a prison cell and thrive. And if we are not adaptable or able to change to match the situation, we will falter. The fear of change, it's a very real fear. I don't know where it ranks, because I remember when I was teaching public speaking, I remember always being shocked that the number one fear, and this is like just what public speaking coaches, I think, somehow came up with. The number one fear in the world is public speaking. And then the next is like pain and death. It's like, no, 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 no. No, there is just no way, I just do not buy that. That the fear of pain and death is second to public speaking. I can almost guarantee you that anyone in here would rather get up in front of an audience and be extremely uncomfortable than to be slowly tortured to death, right? And some of you are like, no, it is being slowly tortured to death to get up in front of an audience and speak. Okay, granted, maybe they're close, right? But the fear of change, I don't know where it ranks in there, but it's a very real thing. And you, you know, I notice it in, in different people where, especially like when you're a young child and you're growing up, you don't want, like I have one of my children that doesn't want to grow up, loves just being a child. And for me, I wasn't like that. I was like, I wanted to grow up. I wanted privilege. I wanted op, you know, opportunity. So all of us are a little different, but it can be really hard. And I am a guy that likes change. I know that sounds strange, but I don't fear change. So it's oftentimes I have, I have to remind myself that most people do fear it because I sort of like it. Uh, all throughout our marriage, Leslie and I, you know, there, there's two philosophies on getting furniture. You know, you buy the best furniture, you invest in that furniture, and then it's an heirloom. Well, I don't want my parents' furniture. <laughs> I don't want heirloom furniture. I want new furniture. I want something that is fresh and it has a new look to it. And so literally like every three years or so, Leslie and I will sell our furniture and buy new furniture. And because we don't spend probably as much on the furniture as that previous generation would ask us to spend on our furniture, lest it break down in five to 10 years, I don't care about that because I'm getting rid of it in three. And it's, but that shows you something about the way I function, that I like fresh. And so if I'm going to be delivering messages, I don't want to deliver the same message over and over and over again. I want to have fresh manna. And so it's, it's a part of how I work. I like change. I like freshness. That's not the same for everyone, which makes me a little more nimble-footed when it comes to lava around me. But at the same time, there are certain things in my life that I struggle with change. And so I could say that in a general sense, I like change, but then there's other things that really are hard. And especially when it comes to the means of communicating. As a communicator, it's hard for me to think of going from books to like a blog. Okay, that, that, just right there, if you could just, I don't know if you could understand it because book publishing was really hard. When I was growing up, this was like, it is the impenetrable fortress. To get a contract and to be a published author was a huge accomplishment. And then suddenly all of that began to melt and now anyone can write a book, anyone can have a blog. And so as a result, that sacredness to the voice of the established voice of like the trustworthy voices out there. Well, if that's a published author, they must have proven themselves somehow. That was the premise point. Now it's whoever has the highest degree of aptitude for SEO or search engine optimization that actually becomes the voice. Well, that's unfair rules. You can't change the rules on me like that just overnight. This is a crazy way to fight a war. This is a crazy way to pass along information, this whole internet thing. And so I am like old school, trying to adapt to a new system. And the question is, is it because the new system is bad, Eric? No, it's, it's not that it's bad, but it could be. It could be real bad. So that's when, you, when you're old school, you have a tendency to find all the flaws in the system and the reasons why you should keep it the way it was. But at the same time, it's not because the system is bad, it's because it's different. And it doesn't play by the same rules that I was used to. And so that means all the hard work that I invested in this is useless now. And so when you've spent a lot of hard work and time in a system that is no longer valuable, it's hard to shift. And that's a normal human thing. The fear of change. So we're, some are so opposed to it that they will continue in misery because misery is at least familiar. And this is a very real thing. 
So this is a book by Barbara Tuckman that we have not quoted from because it's not on the first 30 days of, of August uh, in the war. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram. And she says this about World War I and the commanders, the generals. She says, new commanders stumbled forward in the old rut, not questioning whether to assault the Western Front again, but merely where along its wall to bang their heads. And that is an incredible statement of World War I. No one is willing to change. The military science is set, and it's really hard to alter it. You've got a lot of ego in there. A lot of people like me, it's like, this is how we've always done it. This is how communication works. This is how you establish the brand of an author. You don't just go and do it this way. And it really bothers them. And they cannot alter from their system. And it's going to lead to the loss of millions of lives. The life-sucking lizard. So C.S. Lewis has this, one of uh, his stories talks about this guy. And I'm going to sort of butcher the story at a certain level because I haven't read it in a long time. But this one guy is going to arrive, I think, in the heavenly realms. And there's this like angel with a, 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 like a saber, sword, very sharp. And this man has something on his life that he has been wanting to have removed for a long time. I, I picture it as a lizard, some like creature that's attached to him. And it's like sucking life. It's painful. And he's like, God, please get this off of me. So he arrives in this heavenly place and he has like this angel with a sword. And the angel says, all right, I'm ready to separate you from that lizard. And the man looks at the sharp sword and suddenly is like pausing. He goes, no, 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 wait a, wait a minute. Wait a minute, let's think this through. Why? Because the known pain of the lizard is more comforting to him than the unknown pain of that sword. What would it feel like to have that sword slice that off his body? He doesn't know. He's never gone through that before. So he actually chooses to keep the lizard attached, which is sucking his life away, lest he experience an unknown pain from that sword. Isn't that interesting how we function as, as humans? That sometimes we'll stay in misery because we're afraid of what the change would be because change itself is scary to us. The doctrine of change. Well, first off, there are two kinds of change. So zuma is a word in the Greek which you and I would understand it as yeast. I don't know, maybe some people do still use the word leaven, but it's not normal. We hear the word because in, you know, the Jews you know, would use the word leaven, but not, it's not a typical word for us, but that's what it translates to is leaven. But what is leaven? Zuma, that which is small and yet thoroughly pervades another thing and changes it. That which changes everything that receives it. So yeast is a change agent. And so when yeast enters in, it alters what it enters into, permeates it, and then alters it. Isn't that just an interesting description of yeast? Because most of us haven't really thought about yeast, but that's how it functions. So Jesus, remember I said there's two ways, two kinds of change? Jesus is going to use the concept of yeast, and he's going to use it in two different ways. This is the way we're most familiar with. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven, the zuma, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because if you allow their zuma, their yeast, their doctrine in, it permeates and it will alter your life. You don't want to turn out like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then Jesus is also going to say in Matthew 13, 33, another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like, huh, leaven, zuma which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So there's a heaven leaven, and there seems to be a hell leaven. And as a result, change or leaven itself is not the problem. It's which sort of leaven is actually entering in and permeating. Because God is wanting to come in with his heaven leaven and actually permeate and change all of our life. It's meant to totally alter the way we function. Leaven. There is something very good and something very bad that wants to change your life. So I'm going to use an illustration. I'm going to tell two stories that are sort of, uh, they're very short stories, okay? But I'm going to tell two short stories, and they're basically about fat or fit, okay? It's, this is so, if, I, I don't know if this is going to make everyone feel comfortable or not, but uh, we'll have fun with it nonetheless. Two illustrations of change, one good, one bad. Change example number one, the making of the fat guy. 
Once upon a time, aren't you guys, you could get, you know, cozy in your chair and, you know, snuggle up with, uh, I could say with the person next to you, but maybe we, we should watch out. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a man. This man was in amazing physical condition. When he flexed, his muscles bulged. When he ran, he ran and ran without tiring. When he ate, he ate foods that nurtured his health and built his body stronger. This man was an athlete, but one day, this man changed. He decided that he didn't want the discipline and rigors of exercise anymore. He started eating sugar and chemical-laden junk food. He sat around on the couch all day and watched television. He refused to lift any more weights or accept the challenge of strenuous exercise, sadly. But not surprisingly, this man became fat. Very fat. In fact, so fat that a story was written about him to illustrate the dangers of change. <laughs> the end. I know, it's a powerful story, a little tear-jerking. Uh, you can hand some Kleenex around if we need. This, this next one is really inspiring too. Change example number two, the making of an athlete. Once upon a time, there was a man. This man was fat. When he flexed well, his muscles sagged, or um, maybe it would be better said that his muscles jiggled. When he ran well, he couldn't run. He could only sit. Remember, he was extremely fat. When he ate, he ate foods that added more fat and jiggled to his already fat and jiggly body. This man was a fat guy, but one day this man changed. He decided that he didn't want to live in a fat man's body anymore. He wanted to live differently. He started eating foods that built his body stronger and foods that helped shoo away the fat cells. He started moving, standing up, walking around, running around, sweating, resisting, exerting his inner man. His fat man suit began to melt away and a new sort of guy came forth. Amazingly, but not surprisingly, this man became trim and fit very fit. In fact, so fit that a story was written about him to illustrate the blessings of change. The end. Is change good or bad? It depends on which sort of change it is. There's change that erodes your life. There's change that strengthens your life. And so as a result, change itself is not the enemy. Though there is bad change, it's understanding which sort of change you are agreeing with. The Holy Spirit seeks to change us. Think about the entire design of the Holy Spirit. It's to conform us. It's to alter us. There's even a Greek word that I'm going to introduce you to called metamorpho. There it is. Metamorpho. What does it mean? To change into another form. The form of Christ Jesus. To transform, to transfigure, to be altered into the divine temperament, the heavenly disposition, the perfect glory of his nature and bearing. To be made like Jesus in actuality. Now, metamorpho sounds very similar to a word we all know, metamorphosis, which means to change in nature, just like caterpillar unto butterfly. It is a metamorpho, and that is precisely what is taking place in us. By, by what power? God. The Holy Spirit does this. The Holy Spirit is in the business of change. So to have a fear and a dread of change Actually, you can just sort of put your finger on that and say, oh, that might hinder my spiritual growth. You would be right. Growth itself is change. Maturity itself is based on the premise of change, which means where you are today is not as strong as where you can be tomorrow, but you have to agree with that movement. And if you disagree and you hinder maturity, well, we've all been around people that are older than uh, that are demonstrating baby-like behavior instead of adult behavior, and it's not very pleasant to be around. You see, God intends us not to stifle change, but to allow it. However, there's good change and there's bad change. Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. Talk about an illustration for change right there. Wet clay. And you are potter, and we all, and all we, sorry, and all we are the work of your hand. We are a work of his hand, and we are likened unto clay. In other words, we are changeable. The three variables of change. Number one, there are things in my life that should never change. It's a fact. You see, there are certain things that are supposed to be like rock in my life that don't alter, and that is my relationship with God, my confidence in God, the fact that my life is built upon something that cannot change. Isn't that amazing that I'm saying that our lives must change, but God never changes. And that is our secret to changing correctly, is fixing ourselves to the one who cannot change. 
And so as a result, I don't change in my view of Jesus to suddenly be like, you know what, I think he's no longer God, he's a man only. Or, you know, and I, I start to alter the foundations of what cannot change. So there's certain things that cannot change, that should never change. But two, there are things in my life that must change or I will wither up and die. When the Holy Spirit is convicting me and he's asking me to repent, which is a movement of change in and of itself, and I disagree with it, I actually wither up and die. But when I agree with that change, what the Holy Spirit is initiating in my life, it actually brings life. Number three, there are things in my life that will change and will prove my character and will prove my trust in an unchanging God when they do change. This is how we live. We live with an understanding that there are certain things that must be strong and not change and certain things that must change in our life for us to be healthy and certain things that just will change around us that we are going to be tested by and that will prove our character. General Vladimir Sukomlinov. I know I actually put the pronunciation up there because there were going to be some Russians uh, that were going to be a little uncomfortable. Now they still could be upset you know, with how I said that. These are hard, hard names. So I'm going to actually bring us into Russia a little. Isn't that fun? We're going to hang out in Russia a bit. So this is a study in the dangerous unwillingness to change. The Russians are not going to strut their stuff when World War I starts. Let me just put it that way. They are going to be, look like buffoons uh, in this when this first begins. And ironically, Russia sort of has a long history of starting wars poorly and then turning into a behemoth by the time it ends. Okay, they legendary for it, which is why Germany is convinced that they have 950 days to get ready. Russia is going to shock the world, though, by being mobilized uh, by August 17th. Remember, uh, Germany is invading Belgium on August 4th, and they think they have 900, oh, it's 950 hours. Did I say days? Uh, so that's 39 days. Instead, we're talking like, you know, 13. Uh, this isn't, that's not good for the Germans, because now they're going to have a strike from two fronts. But this is a study in the dangerous, uh, the dangers that come from not changing, from being unprepared. So here's our guy, Vladimir Sukumlinov, Russia's minister of war. So this is the guy that's in charge of all the preparations. So you're going to see the mentality. It's not just in Russia. However, Russia really was entrenched in old world thinking, and they could not get out of it. Now, you guys might want to take a look at his outfit before we go, because that's going to become an important thing in history as well. So, what does Sukumlinov uh, say? Uh, we swap news with the nearest... Not, sorry, guys, this is not supposed to be... This is part of uh, Old Contemptibles. I took it and copied it, so skip. In as far as readiness for war was concerned, the regime was personified by its minister for war, General Sukumlinov. An artful, indolent, pleasure-loving, chubby little man in his 60s, of whom his colleague, Foreign Minister Sazanov, said, it was very difficult to make him work, but to get him to tell the truth was nigh impossible. Having won the cross of St. George as a dashing young cavalry officer in the War of 1877 against the Turks, Sukumlinov believed that military knowledge acquired in that campaign was permanent truth. As Minister of War, he scolded a meeting of staff college instructors for interest in such innovations as the factor of firepower against the saber, lance, and the bayonet charge. He could not hear the phrase modern war, he said, without a sense of annoyance. This is Sukumlinov speaking. As war was, so it has remained. All these things are merely vicious innovations. Look at me. For instance, I have not read a military manual for the last 25 years, and he's proud of it. In other words, all this talk about modern war, bah, heresy. War is now as war has always been. And this thought is going to permeate the Russian military system and is going to catch them in a very unready state for modern warfare. You could just imagine if their leader will not even talk about it, has not read any of the studies, has not read what is taking place in other wars that are happening recently, to know what has happened with the change from rifle to Gatling gun to machine gun. 
He doesn't want to think about it, doesn't want to talk about it. He gets annoyed over that. You could just imagine. Can't you sort of feel that something bad is about to happen? While Sukumulanov left work to others, he allowed no freedom of ideas. Clinging stubbornly to obsolete theories and ancient glories, he claimed that Russia's past defeats had been due to mistakes of commanding officers rather than to any inadequacy of training, preparation, or supply. They are going to be so undersupplied for World War I that literally they don't have guns for all of their soldiers. And those soldiers that do have guns, which is like one in three, have like one bullet. This is somewhat of a crisis, okay? Because to protect yourself without a gun or to handle the German military, which is the strongest in world history up to this time, and is very well armed, this is going to create a crisis of epic proportions. So interestingly enough, they're going to move faster than anyone was expecting, which all the allies are like, we've got them. We can hit them on two fronts. Oh, even if they brought all of their weight this way, they are vulnerable now in Prussia. Remember the, the nose of the horse as it's sticking up towards Russia? Yeah, strike them right there. Hit them in the nose. And that's exactly what they're going to do. Russia is going to strike and strike quickly. With invincible belief in the bayonet's supremacy over the bullet. All right, now, isn't that interesting? Because we look back, we're like, that is dumb to think that a bayonet would be stronger than a bullet. And yet, that's the world. That's the old world that we are in. Now, we have the same thing. We have bayonet thoughts in our life, too, because that's the way it's always been for us. And it's really hard to adapt. And I'm, I'm like a leader of the pack on that. There are certain things that are really hard for me. This is the way we've always done it. Like when I hear about an automated mower, you know, one that, you know, Philip has like this mower that goes around and just like mows his lawn. It's like, what? That takes all the fun out of life because mowing a fresh smell as you're like going around, you know, there's, there's a certain joy to that. How could you remove that, uh, you know, and give it to this machine? And yet, you know, so how long does Eric hang on to his automated mower? They stop making gas, you know, and, and all this, everything, and I still have my mower, you know, and suddenly it's like, this isn't working anymore. I, I don't have gas. I can't buy gas. It's like, Eric, you may want to rethink how you're approaching this, but I can't. This is how I grew up. That smell has always been a part of my life. And so how do we approach all of these issues? With invincible belief in the bayonet's supremacy over the bullet, he made no effort to build up factories for increased production of shells, rifles, and cartridges. No country, its military critics invariably discover afterward, is ever adequately prepared in munitions. So here we are in Europe, and you see Russia up there to the right, and Germany is the horse's head at the top of that sort of purplish-red color. And I'm going to put a star right where Russia is going to hit. It's called uh, East Prussia. And so, boom, they're going to hit, and they're going to hit with 800,000 men. Okay, now, Germany, actually, I think it's 850,000. 850,000 men. Germany has put all of its strength on the other side. They are not expecting this. They have 250,000 in this region. 250,000 against 850,000, who are you voting for? Now, of course, after my little speech about Sukumlanov, you're not exactly sure who you want to vote for, right? Because though Russia has manpower, they are still old school. And they're going to come so unprepared, ill-prepared. I mean, even the two generals that are leading, it breaks up into two groups, hate each other and will not talk to each other. There is no coordination amongst them, and it's going to lead to such a travesty, one of the most lopsided losses, or if you look at it from the German side, victories in the history of war. I mean, it's totally amazing. So just on the screen, I have the disaster of unpreparedness. So between August 17th and September 14th, oftentimes called the Battle of Tannenberg, you see 850,000 Russians, on the, you know, I have that, the flag on the left, versus 250,000 Germans. Russian casualties... 300,000. German casualties, roughly 50,000. So the, the party with only 250,000 troops is going to devastate the Russians. The Allies, just imagine how they're feeling. They're like, we finally, we're going to be able to defeat the Germans. Instead, it gets worse. Now the Germans are more confident than they've ever been. It's like, wow, we're a powerful army. And so this is going to lead to even an increased length of time in this war. This one event of the Russian invasion is actually going to spike the 
solidarity of the nation, because what is their big issue? Encirclement. And what is happening? They're being encircled. And so as a result, they recognize if they don't win this war, and they cannot just surrender, they need to win it, they're going to be taken over. This is hostile. And this only, in a sense, affirms their belief in that. The Sukhomlinov effect is actually something that you could look up and study. And this is what it means. It comes from this guy, ironically. And it is this. Wars are lost by the side that wears fancy, the fanciest uniforms. That's actually the, the thought. Now, it's ironically, if you study it, it's sort of true, even though that's, I, I can't imagine that that has a lot to do with if you win or lose a war, right? But it is sort of a fascinating thing. This guy is so fancy. I like gold uh, up to his elbows and yet they're going to be devastated. Fancy uniforms mean nothing in this. And so I guess the same could be true for us, not that I'm teaching on the Sukhomlinov effect right now, but uh, it is sort of a funny thought. Sanctification. You know what sanctification is? It's the process of us being made holy. You know what that is in its very essence? Change. Embracing the constant change brought about by the Holy Spirit. Constant improvement. There's a word that the Japanese came up with, even though they didn't come up with the concept. It's called kaizen constantly improving. So their technology, constantly improving. The Americans have a tendency to make something and go, that's good enough. And yet the Japanese sort of created this whole problem in our technological uh, you know, warfare between them. It's like, they're really good. They take what we invented and they make it better. Well, what do we need to do? I think we need to adopt the sanctification process to our own technological developments. We need to constantly get better too. This is actually not the invention of the Japanese. This is how God works with all of us. He is constantly improving us in our behavior, in our thinking, in our, sp in our speech. Wallace versus Sokomlinov. So William Wallace, you know, Ellerslie is named after William Wallace's birthplace, right? And so I'm a big fan. When England and Edward I invaded Scotland in 1296, it revealed to the armies of Scotland that their historic feudal-style military tactics that had always proven effective were no longer able to sustain them and must be adapted to meet the current challenge. A radical review and revision of their military approach then ensued. William Wallace and Robert the Bruce both engaged the English in a form of quasi-guerrilla warfare with their chief strategy being, whenever possible, to pick the side of the battle and to make the ground fight for them. This tactic worked, eliminating the advantage of the English size and strength in playing England's slow-moving feudal-style girth against them by hitting them with the hobbler. This allowed the Scots to win battles against vastly superior size and strength, simply by wielding the tactic of speed and surprise. Remember that old-school military thing? <laughs> You're shoulder to shoulder, line after line after line, and you never turn to the right or the left. Your job is to stay focused and to march, and you just mow down your enemy. And so this is Edward I. He has feudal style warfare. Well, Wallace has no, hardly any men. He has no weapons. He has like a whole bunch of farmers with pitchforks. How are you supposed to fight this massive behemoth? So he brings over a horse that had just been bred in Ireland called the hobby horse is what we know it as, the hobbler. sticks a soldier on the back of it with a sword and sends him in through the side of the ranks. They're not allowed to turn. And so he just chops them all down. And what Edward I is thinking is, that's not fair. You can't do that. And he would not change from his system. And his unwillingness to change totally devastated the English army. I mean, it's, it's, you want to almost laugh out loud. It's like, are you serious? Allow your men to turn, to swing their sword, to do something. But no, keep your gaze forward. This is going to alter battle. So you're going to see this guerrilla warfare begin to move into the realm of battle, and military science is going to change right here. A time for radical reviews. So this is the statement I said earlier, but look at the last line that I made uh, big. A radical review and revision of their military approach then ensued. For many of us, we need, as the church of Jesus Christ today, to go through a radical review of our military approach. How are we doing this as the church? I know how we've done it in the past, and I really esteem how it was done in the past, but what is needed today to win this battle? And so that's where the term, the hobbler, comes in. The hobbler, the result of humble, radical review. The hobbler is something that God brings about. David was a hobbler. In a time when the, the Israelites were paralyzed with fear under Goliath's boast in the Philistine army, and suddenly a hobbler comes in which totally caught them off guard. 
Goliath's defenses were not set up for a rock in the forehead. He wasn't ready for that. Esther was a hobbler. Gideon was a hobbler. Jesus on the cross, a hobbler. The powers of darkness would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they had known. You see, this is the power of the gospel in every generation, and what we need to be sensitive to is this radical review of our operations. Are we willing to change, or are we going to hold on to our old ways of doing things? The red trouser dilemma. So here's our guy, uh, our French uh, war minister. Eliminate the red trousers? Never! And here's the bondservants of Christ. Eliminate the red trousers? Sure. Whatever the Spirit of God says is the strategy for the moment, our readiness as bondservants with an ear pierced is absolutely. Father, I ask that you would work this willingness, this readiness to change, this readiness to allow you to build a hobbler for our generation to happen in us as the church. We ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.